You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. If this is your first time with us or first time in a while, uh, we have been journeying through the book of Acts uh, for the better part of the last year and a half or so. We've been doing many series that we've taken breaks from here or there. We took a break for Advent at Christmas time. Uh, we have next Sunday. Uh, after next Sunday's message, we'll conclude this third missionary uh, journey series of Acts, and we'll take a break for our I Am series, looking uh, at some of Jesus's I Am statements leading up to Easter Sunday. Uh, so, so this is our next to last message in this mini-series. Uh, but you could see there that I've entitled it, Be Encouraged. Be Encouraged. And we're going to be in Acts 22, verses 22 through chapter 23, verse 11. Uh, it's a little bit lengthier, but it, it shouldn't take us too long to get through it. We're, we're tying the loose ends of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And for those maybe that have not been here, uh, very quickly, uh, the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem. He was warned before going to Jerusalem by a prophet, hey, I don't see good things happening for you as you're about to go. Like, I see you being bound in chains. Like, this isn't going to go well. Maybe you shouldn't go. And others were urging him, hey, maybe you shouldn't go. Yet Paul saying, no, this is what I've been called to. I want to be in Jerusalem. He goes. And sure enough, as he gets there, there are people that are saying uh, malice things about him. They're accusing him of things that are not true. And yet he starts to be in the middle of a mob. Those that are wanting to kill him, they start to beat him. And he's taken up to uh, go into the barracks by the tribune. He's bound in chains, much like the prophet told him. And as he's there, he's, as we're going to see today, he's about to be beaten and flogged. But God intervenes. And we're going to see how Paul responds to all of this today. But I want to ask you, do you recall a time in your life where things just weren't going the way that they seemed were the right way? The way where things were just difficult? And when you were going through that time when it was very difficult, I can guarantee you were probably very discouraged, were you not? Like when we go through those rough spots, it's discouraging, it's hard, it's difficult. And at times it leaves us asking why? What are you doing, God? Are you there? These are natural things that well up in us. I remember, uh, some of you have heard me mention this before, but I remember the early part of last year in 2022 uh, when my wife Miranda was going through uh, an illness with things with her brain, and there was a lot of uncertainty, and, and she was just worn out, and she, there wasn't much that she could physically do because of what was going on uh, with her brain. And that season was extremely difficult for our family. It was, it was very, very difficult. Uh, if I'm honest, I felt like my joy was gone. I was depressed, I was tired, and I was questioning, God, what are you doing? This is difficult. And I remember there were times where I was pushing everybody out. The people that were closest to me, I was pushing them out. My relationships were strained. It was, it was hard. And I remember there was one time where even Walter set me down. He's like, bro, what's going on? I got to open up to him and share, like, this is, this is where I'm at. I'm depressed. This is what's happening. And there were others here that did the same. And, and I remember going through all of that and just feeling I was at my wit's end, not thinking anything bad or anything like that, but I was just, I was tired. I was just struggling. 
And thankfully, the Lord reminded me through brothers and sisters in Christ of the hope of the gospel and the fact that they were with me, but most importantly, something that I know, but when you're in those moments, all you're seeing is what's right in front of you. They reminded me, Brian, the Lord is with you. The Lord is helping you. He's getting you through this. He's going to get your family through this. And sure enough, he did, as he always does. It may not look the way we want it to look, but he does. Through our journey in Acts, we've seen Paul go through so much, haven't we? He's gone through a lot. He's had highs. He's had lows. It's been difficult, especially these last two weeks as we've looked at this over this last chapter or two. It's been very hard for Paul. He's been beaten and threatened. He's going to face the potential of extreme pain through flogging. More on that in a minute. And he did all of this for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord encourages him in this passage to stay encouraged, to take courage. Because he was still going to use him. He, as we just sang a moment ago, he wasn't finished with Paul yet. And I want to ask the question today before we even dive in, is there anybody here in this place or anybody that's listening online that you're wondering, God, are you finished with me? Are you done with me? I want to encourage you, if that's what you're questioning, if that's what you're asking, he's not finished with you yet. Be encouraged. Let's take a moment to pray before we dive in, and then we'll start. Will you join me? Father in heaven, Lord, you are so good. Lord, we thank you, Father, that you're not finished with us yet. Lord, we're so thankful and humbled that we can call upon you as Abba Father. Lord, I pray over these next few moments, Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing unto you. May you have your way and speak to us right now, Lord. We ask this in the name of all names, King Jesus. Amen. So the Lord Jesus, we see in this passage today, he's present with Paul. He's given this defense before the people. And as followers of Jesus, we can be encouraged by Jesus' providential care, the clinging to the hope of the resurrection that he only provides. So if you're taking notes, I hope you are. Here's the first point. It'll be on the screen for you as well as the scriptures. Be encouraged by Jesus' providential care. Be encouraged by Jesus' providential care. We're going to look at beginning in chapter 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, we can now see that once Paul finishes his defense, as we covered last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you hadn't had a chance to. He's given that defense, and these people, they were silent through it all. They listened to every word he had to say. But when the time was over for Paul to finish talking, they immediately flipped the switch again. They began crying out. And as we just read, they're like, this man doesn't deserve to live. Now, for that little extra context, remember, they're saying that he's going contrary to the law of Moses. He's going contrary to the law that God has laid out for all of his people to follow because he was engaging with Gentiles. 
But we remember from Acts 9 that the gospel is not just for a select few. It's for all who would repent and believe. And so we see that when God calls Paul in Acts 9, he tells them, you will suffer much for my name's sake as you take the message to the Gentiles. In other words, as you get the message out from just here to all who would listen, all who would repent and believe in the finished work of Jesus. So verses 23 and 24, we read, As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they're shouting against him like this. It's a chaotic scene, right? There's so much chaos happening right now as we read these words. The cloaks are being thrown. Dust is flying. It's a mess. It's a mob. They want Paul dead. And so this tribune, who's been involved so far through the story, he looks and he says, bring him into the barracks. We need to be done with this. He's obviously ticking the people off no matter what he says. They're not listening to it. So we're going to bring him in and we're going to flog him. And that's how we're going to examine him. We're going to make sure, we're going to get the words out of him. It's a way of interrogating him. But it's through physical, disgusting pain. He tells them it's time to be flogged. It's time to take him in and do this. If you recall, flogging is what Jesus went through when he was severely beaten before going to the cross. Flogging is more than just what Paul and Silas experienced back in Philippi. We remember studying what they went through in Philippi. They were beaten by sticks. This is flogging. This is where they take pieces of broken rocks and and glass and they tie it to the end of a leather whip and they whip your body over and over and over. You can imagine as they're about to do this, they're doing it so that they can get every bit of word out of Paul. But Paul is not lying. Paul's telling the truth. Paul's giving account of what God has really done in his life before the people. It's the people that had it wrong. Paul has the message. Paul has the truth. So they're going to beat him and get it out of him as they assume. Look at 25 and 26. But when they had stretched him out with the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, Why are you about, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. See, Paul tells the centurion, Hey, wait a minute. What you're about to do, it goes contrary to the law that you follow. I'm not talking about the law that those people out there are yelling about. Your Roman law says that you are not to do this to somebody who has not been tried and found guilty. Why are you about to do this to a Roman citizen? And the centurion hears it, and he immediately goes to the tribune. He's like, dude, what are you doing? You are about to bring mass chaos and pain upon you and I because we're the ones here about to do this. You're about to flog, whip, and beat a Roman citizen who has not been found guilty. What are you doing? It's illegal for that to happen. And remember, this tribune, he's doing what he thought was normal. We remember back in Acts 21 from a couple weeks ago, as he's talking with Paul there, he tells him, wait a minute, aren't you the Egyptian that's causing all the ruckus? No, no, you got it wrong, man. I'm not. I'm a Roman citizen. 
he realized that, man, this is a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake, and they should not do this. Verse 27 tells us, the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. See, the centurion, or the tribune, excuse me, he's telling Paul, wait a minute, I paid a lot of money to be able to be a Roman citizen. How, how are you a Roman citizen? He's looking down on him. Remember, he's thinking he's somebody else. Paul looks at me and he goes, I've been a citizen by birth. I've been a citizen by birth. Yes, I've gone up through the Jewish system, the educational and learning. And as he says in a moment, basically, he ties it in with what he talks about in Philippians. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. But he's a Roman citizen by birth. Therefore, it's illegal for what's about to happen to him. We read in verse 29, So those who are about to examine him, i.e. beat him, withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. They realize the pickle that they're in. They realize what's about to go down, and they leave Paul. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. we're not going to do this. Just leave him bound. You know, we'll, we'll figure out something else, but do not do this because this is bad. Now, what does all of this first part, this section, have to show us? I said the point is to be encouraged by Jesus' providential care. Remember this. As I said a few moments ago, when God called Paul in Acts 9, and he is transformed radically, he is saved, God tells Ananias, you're going to do this, you're going to go and find Paul, you're going to lead him, because he will suffer much for my name's sake to get the message out to the Gentiles. Well, Brian, if that's the case, then he should have gotten flogged. No, no, no. You got to remember, Paul's already been through so much. I mean, he writes in Corinthians that he was shipwrecked. All the pain and everything that, that comes along with that. The fact that he was already been beaten before. The fact that he, what I mentioned earlier about with the sticks. Just the two passages we looked at the last two weeks. He's beaten by the mob and they're about to stone him to death. Paul has suffered much for the sake of getting the message out. But the Lord's providential care spares him here in this moment. Because here's the deal. We don't see it with Jesus, obviously, because Jesus, after getting beaten within an inch of his life, still has to carry the cross to Calvary, where he then dies on the cross, where he then gives up his spirit to the Father after everything has been finished, as he says, and then he dies. But most people, when they were flogged in that way, those people were beaten so badly, and many died from their injuries. So Paul could have most certainly been killed. Yet the Lord's providential care takes care of him. And because of his Roman citizenship, he's able to be spared. Let me ask this question, a question to consider. Can you recall a time when God obviously intervened in your life, demonstrating his providential care? Can you recall that? Maybe you can't right now. I would encourage you, write that down and think through that. I'm sure we can all give some example in our life to where we've seen God demonstrate his providential care. We have been spared in some way, shape, or form. As you think through that, have you thanked him for what he's done? 
And have you allowed that to be a catalyst to proclaim the good news of the gospel while you're on mission? Remember, the mission is to make much of his name, to go and tell the world, every man, woman, and child in our circle of accountability, the places where we live, work, and play of his goodness so that many can come to faith in Christ prayerfully. We seek to fulfill the great commission in this generation. We do it by loving God. We do it by loving people and begging God to use us. Can you recall that time Does it bring you much joy and encouragement in remembering that and use it as fuel to catalyst to move forward on mission? Be encouraged by Jesus' providential care. Secondly, be encouraged when faced with opposition. Be encouraged when faced with opposition. Verse 30 reads, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. It appears that the tribune maybe had a rough night. He's wrestling with it. He's trying to understand, I don't know why these guys are in such an uproar about what's going on. I'm going to Paul. I'm going to unbound him. And you know what? We're going to go before the high priest. We're going to go before the council. We're going before the Sanhedrin. So we can get answers to what's going on here. Because we're obviously not getting any answers here. We move now into chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul then goes back on defense. He goes back on defense before the people. Notice, he looks at them intently. He knows the opportunity that he has before this council to testify of the grace and mercy of God in his life. So he takes advantage of that opportunity. Verse 2 tells us, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. It's almost his way of saying, how dare you address us that way? We're the Sanhedrin. We're the law around here. How dare you talk to us that way? Now look at Paul's response. Verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Whoa. This is the high priest. He's talking to the guy by the Jewish system. Business is really starting to pick up. It appears that Paul lashes out in some anger here, right? Some of us would probably say, yeah, rightfully so. I have felt that way before. I want to lash out. We know it's not right. Have you ever been there when there's some type of injustice being done against you or another, and you want to respond with some type of anger or frustration? You want to address it? Yes. So we all probably have in some way, shape, or form. It's important to note that that we always hope to honor Christ with our responses, much like Jesus does. Remember, right before Jesus is taken to be flogged, he's standing there before Pilate, and Pilate's like, tell me what you need to tell me. I need to know why are you being accused this way? What is going on? And Jesus just stands there. He just stands there. Very little word spoken. Ultimately, because he knows from the night before, with praying with the Father, that this is the will of the Father. 
for him to die. Although being falsely accused, although being tried in the moment where it wasn't even supposed to be happening, Jesus goes through what he does to ultimately die on our behalf. Paul is addressing this out of frustration, yes. It's important to notice something here, though. Paul knows the law. Paul knows the way in which you're supposed to handle yourself. Most scholars believe that Paul in this moment doesn't realize that Ananias is the high priest. He doesn't necessarily realize that he is addressing the high priest when he's firing back that attitude. Matter of fact, in just a moment, we see that he rebuttals. He kind of cowers back. He's like, whoa, 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 I didn't mean to do that. Most would say that at this point of time where he's getting there, the high priest is probably not in all of his proper garments that would indicate that he is the high priest. So Paul doesn't understand. Paul also has not been in Jerusalem in some eight years. So it could very well be that he just doesn't know who the guy is. But Paul declares to Ananias that God will strike him, and he calls him a whitewashed wall. You may recall from the Gospels that Jesus referred to the scribes and the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs back in Matthew 23. See, in those days, anybody who died, they, they would be placed inside of a tomb. They would, a stone or the covering would be put in front. And in order to make sure that nobody came contrary to the law and intervened with a dead body, they had that thing up and they would paint it white. It would be whitewashed to indicate, hey, the outside is nice and clean, but this is the indicator. There is death on the other side of this. So what is Paul saying when he looks at him, he calls him a whitewashed person. He's telling him, hey, you may have everything put together on the outside. Everything may look right. Everything may be good, but you are dead on the inside. Harsh, right? Harsh. We think about it, though, that could be a reality for the people that we love closest to us that don't know the Lord. They may check every box that needs to be checked, yet they are dark on the inside because the Holy Spirit does not indwell them because they don't know the Lord Jesus. It's a sobering thought, is it not? If you're like me, it, it makes me want to get on my knees and pray even more for those people. He refers back to the law in this moment. See, back in Leviticus 19.15, it reads this. It's on the screen for you. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. See, Paul's indicating, he's like, man, I'm, I'm retaliating in this moment. I'm saying this because I am being done wrong. I have done nothing wrong. Verses 4 and 5 read, Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? As I said the rebuttal, Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall speak, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See, the Sanhedrin, they call Paul out. How dare you say this of the high priest? What is your problem? And Paul immediately, Brothers, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this. The law says this. We're to honor those who are above us. I didn't mean to. 
There are times where we may not be in front of a council and being put on trial because of our faith. There may be a time when that time does come. I don't know. But in our lifetime, we may not see something like that. But we do face opposition in this life. I would encourage you. This is not a a word of condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. If you're not getting any type of opposition for your faith, my question is, are you proclaiming and demonstrating it in your life? That's not a diff. That's, again, I'm asking myself the same question. If we're not having any type of opposition, I'm not saying we go out and say, hey, who wants to contend against me? I'm not saying that. But I am saying if there is no opposition in our life to our faith, nobody is questioning us, nobody is, is talking down on us because of our beliefs, are we proclaiming it and demonstrating it in a way that people see it? That people hear us talk about it and they ask questions. I told you guys a few weeks ago, one of the things that now that I've transitioned to a secular environment from a Christian environment, I'm bivocational for those of you that don't know me. In the secular environment, the Lord has been giving me opportunities to be able to engage with people about the gospel, and it's been great. And in those times of having conversations, I've had one person look at us and say, I don't believe that magic book. Why do you believe that magic book? That's nothing but a bunch of lies. This is a person that I've already started to become very fond of. I care about him. And it breaks my heart that he thinks that way about the Word of God. But it is open channels for conversation. He knows because we talk about it at work and the things that we have. We have a Bible study now taking place at 6 a.m. in our office. He knows those things are going on, so he's going to call it into question. I rejoice in the fact that I'm getting that from him rather than getting nothing at all. Are we facing any opposition? If you are facing opposition, I want to encourage you to be encouraged. Because that means that you're doing something right. You're being a witness for Christ. Be encouraged with that. A question to consider, how will you respond when those who oppose Christ are cruel to you? How will you respond when someone is hurtful towards you? Will you rejoice? Will you keep loving them? Will you keep pressing forward? Number three, be encouraged by the hope of the resurrection. Be encouraged by the hope of the resurrection. Verse six tells us, now when Paul perceived that one, that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. You see, Paul is very good at noticing what's going on in his surroundings. He notices that this council of people that are before him, oops, yep, that guy is the high priest, my bad. Wait, this is Sadducees. Wait a minute, this is the Pharisees. Hold on, guys. I've gone through the educational system. I know the things. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he says they're a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Doesn't mean that his dad was a Pharisee. Let's just clear that up. But he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he talks about in Philippians. And he knows the difference between the two. You see, the Sadducees, they denied the resurrection. They denied that there was no resurrection. The Pharisees, they were okay with it. They didn't deny it. 
Talks about that there's angels. They knew that. They knew his spirit. Paul picks up on this, and he's like, wait a second. I know, I know what's about to happen here. And so he declares the truth. It is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He's saying it's because of Jesus that I'm on trial. It's not because of anything I've done wrong. It's because of the fact that there was a man that lived a perfect sinless life that died on the cross for you and me. And he was buried in a tomb that was borrowed, not even reserved for him. And on three days later, he got up. He's not dead anymore. He's resurrected. He's appeared before people. It's because of him that I am on trial. Verses 7 and 8 together read, when, they had said, when he had said this, this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Just as I said, now this big grumbling, this big argument, this dissension amongst them comes to be. You see, the Pharisees, they had this eschatological hope, this hope in the end time that the reality of Jesus is that he is the fulfillment to the law. The Sadducees held fast to the Torah. They claim there's no resurrection. There's no angels. There's no spirit. They don't believe in that. The Pharisees believed these things, as Paul indicated, that Jesus is the fulfillment to their hope. Verse 9 tells us, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Phar- of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? It has gotten so intense there in that moment that these Pharisees, they stand up and they say, there is no fault in this man. What if God has truly sent an angel? What if the Spirit has made clear to him? What if what he's saying truly is the truth? We cannot find any fault in him. Which leads us to verse 10. When the dissension became violent, it became violent, church. The tribune, the guy that's been there, kind of rescued him before. Now he's about to rescue him again. The tribune, in verse 10, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. I don't know about you, but I find great hope and I am encouraged at the fact that there was such a dispute over the resurrection of Jesus. You might say, well, Brian, why is that the case? Why why do you feel that way? You see, without the resurrection, there's no eternal life. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross is crucial. Yes. But if he doesn't resurrect, he dies like any other man. He pays the price on the cross, much like we studied back in Leviticus. Bloodshed needed to be done for the sins of the people. Jesus' blood is shed for us after a gruesome, tormenting death. God's wrath is poured out on Jesus, and he dies. But if he doesn't resurrect, he just dies. The resurrection proves that Jesus wasn't just a man, but he's God. 
That resurrection is so crucial for us today. Historical evidence is so incredibly important. Historical evidence gives us hope because Jesus' resurrection wasn't something that was just written about and nobody saw happen. On the third day, early in the morning, the women go to the tomb to prepare his body. And they see the tomb empty. And they ask, where is he? What has happened? And Jesus appears before them. And Jesus says, go and tell the brothers that I've risen and that I'm coming to meet them. Jesus appears before the brothers, spends some 40 days on this earth, seen by people, resurrected, and then ascends to heaven after he gives the charge of the Great Commission. Every single one of those people that heard that commission set forth and began telling every person they possibly could what they had seen, what they had realized. Jesus is alive. They followed through exactly with what they were told to do by Jesus in Acts 1.8. It's on the screen for you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those people, after they saw the risen Christ, literally went forward and did that. They had this moment of seeing him ascend, and they're like, whoa. Whoa. Oh, oh, we got to go do something. We got to go do. We got to go tell the world what we've seen, what he's done. And so they go and they do it. We have got to be encouraged by the hope of the resurrection because we have a living hope that because of the resurrection, Jesus has given us eternal life. If we would repent and believe, we have the promise of one day taking our last breath here and seeing the Savior before us in his presence. All because of what he's done. There is great hope in the resurrection. It should encourage us. It should motivate us. It shouldn't make us sit back and say, yeah, Jesus, he resurrected. We should say, man, he got up. Why am I sitting down? I need to tell the world what he's done. Another question to consider, are you encouraged by the resurrection? Are you so full of joy that you've been redeemed from eternal separation, that you are willing to declare it to your lost family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers? It's a life or death situation. Eternally. Be encouraged by the hope of the resurrection, and very quickly, the last point, be encouraged by the risen Christ. Be encouraged by the risen Christ. It just follows through right off of that. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As I was preparing this this week, it I got to this verse, and I got to thinking about Paul and saying, man, what, what was Paul thinking in that moment? Right before we get to 11. Like, he's there in the barracks that night, and he's been through so much. He trusts the Lord, 
But he's not Christ. He's not perfect. He's sinful. I bet the doubts were there. I bet there were even moments of questioning. Man, should I have listened to the guys and not come to Jerusalem? What's going to happen to me? He's at a low point. And don't get me wrong. I know that Jesus is speaking clearly to Paul here about what his next assignment will be. But I think we can find some great encouragement for us from Jesus' words here in verse 11. He says, take courage to Paul. He says, Paul, I want you to know that I am fully aware of everything that you've been through. And I'm with you. I'm aware of everything that you've been through. I've walked with you every step. Brothers and sisters, he has walked with us every single step. He's never left us. He's never abandoned us. He never will. We're never alone. He makes it clear before the ascension when he's there before those followers, that I will be with you always to the end of the age. And he's given us something incredible. He's given us the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us. He's given us the helper that he, that he promised. I will send a helper for you. And the moment that we repented and believed, we had that helper. And much like we sang, the Lord is not done with us. Just like Paul was told by Jesus that he was testified in Jerusalem and now he's going to be going to Rome, the Lord was not done with Paul. He's not done with you or I. We sit here breathing. We sit here with a call that is still on our lives as we discussed last week, as we discuss every week, to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. We still have time for the mission of God. We still have time to fulfill what He's called us to do Parents, what he's called us to do in our homes with the children that we have under our care. And this is coming from the guy that wrestles with this all the time. What seems like such a long period of time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter that they're under our care. Take advantage of the time. The Lord's not done with you. There are people that are outside the walls of this building right now in this community and in our daily lives, our circles of accountability that are in, as we would call it, the harvest. We pray every day at Luke 10, 2 at 10.02. Harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to build up, equip, send out labors into his harvest, right? It is his harvest. He's called us to pray that earnestly, to beg him for that. 
There are people right now that are out there in that harvest that you and I don't even know. Yet God in his perfect timing will bring them in our path. And don't miss this. As we studied several, several weeks ago, when they come into our path, if we're obedient and we're following the Lord and we're doing what we're called to do, we will either plant that seed, we will either water that seed, or we will be able to stand there and watch God cause the growth. People that we don't even know yet. He's not done with us. Be encouraged, church. He's not done yet. If you have breath in your lungs, I don't care how old you may be or young you may be physically. I don't care how old you may be or how young you may be spiritually. He's not done with us. Be encouraged by the risen Christ who is always with us that never leaves us and that has called us. My question to us right now is how will we respond to this? How will we respond? Will we respond by saying, well, that's overwhelming task for me, Brian. I, I don't know what to do next. Honestly, if that is your response, I'm happy to hear that. Because we have been called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and we will help you figure out how to do the next step. I don't know what the response is for you, but I know this. The Lord's not finished with us yet. So let's take the time. We're going to pray quietly for a moment. If, if you want to jot down anything, maybe the Lord's saying to you that you want to jot in your notes or whatever, do that. Spend some time praying back to him. The worship team is going to lead us in a closing song, and we are going to sing of the goodness of God. I'll be here at the front while we're singing. If you need to talk, I'll talk with you afterwards as well. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I am so grateful, Lord, that you're not finished with us yet. Father, I'm thankful, Lord, for the encouragement we have through you. That we're to be encouraged because you're with us. You've never left us. You'll never leave us, forsake us. Lord, that is not something just to look past quickly, Lord. That is incredible. The God of the universe is with us. He's our help in times of trouble. God, you're so good. I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice, those here and those listening online, God, wherever they may be right now on the journey. Lord, I pray that you'd make clear, Lord, what they should do next. Or whether that's stepping out and, and asking, hey, I, I need to know what I can do next. I, I'm, I'm at a crossroads. I, I'm lost. I need some guidance. Or that has to say, man, I, I've been a part of this church visiting for quite some time and really think it's time to, to join and be a part of this family. Whether it's to say, man, hey, I... I don't know this Jesus. 
but I want to. Whatever it is, make it clear to us this morning. As we always ask God, have your way in us, we pray. In the name above all names, the name of King Jesus, amen.